Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Got a lot of stuff to talk about this week, as we do every week, but I have a pair of podcast notes, one of which is vitally important because today is July 30th. That means it is the last day for you to recommend us for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. I mentioned a couple episodes ago how this works. Basically, there are a whole bunch of nominations. We were one of them. And they have a slate of judges that is going to consider who's the best, but they only consider five. They only consider five podcasts per category. And how they pick those five is based on listener recommendations, listener votes. So what I need you to do, and you got to do it today because today's the last day, is that you have to go to our show notes. So go to fiscamall.com, our website. Click on the link for any of the past three episodes. Scroll down to the show notes, and the very first link is going to be a link to where you can sign up and cast your votes. Now, there's like 20-something categories of podcasts. I don't care who you vote for for the other categories. But what I need is for the news and politics category for you to vote for us. We are hashtag Fiscamall. We should be one of the first few entries there. They're sorted alphabetically. Hashtags come first under computer code. And once you vote for us, vote for whoever you want everywhere else. All right. So pause the podcast. I will still be here when you come back. And please vote for us for the 13th annual podcast awards right now. Okay. Also, starting tomorrow, July 31st, Tuesday, We are going to do one of our occasional online fundraisers. This one is going to be for a group called Crayons to Calculators. Uh, I don't necessarily need your money, although your money would be great. We're mostly looking to get school supplies. So I will be tweeting out uh, a pic of the stuff that they're asking for. Basically, we've done this for them before. Crayons to Calculators is essentially a warehouse where teachers who need supplies for their class just walk in and they can just get stuff what they need. You know, it's something where they don't have to shell out money on their own to get supplemental supplies. And it's a pretty nifty setup. But as part of that, every year they have to get supplies in. So most likely what I would uh, be best served by your help would be for you to hop on Amazon or Walmart or wherever you get your stuff, order school supplies from that particular retailer and have them shipped to my office, which is serving as one of the donation sites this year. So keep an eye on Twitter. Know that will be coming. We're going to be doing our quarterly e-fundraiser for Crayons to Calculators. Uh, Last podcast note, we are at 120 patrons on Patreon. That is phenomenal. It's fantastic. That's crazy because I remember when we started this less than a year ago and we only had just a few. I guess it's been about a year now, give or take, because we started the Patreon page a few months after the podcast started. Uh, But remember, once we hit 150, I have pledged that we will start doing these episodes twice a week, which hopefully will mean they would be half as long so I wouldn't have these massive 20-something page outlines. But if you have $7 a month that you are willing to spare for the cause... Uh, please become one of our patrons. We would appreciate it. I know Mike, the sound guy, would appreciate it, and our uh, media host would appreciate it because that's how they all get paid. They get paid from your generous support. Okay, if you have not already done so, 
please join the conversation online. We are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. The same place where you can find all of our show notes, including the link for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. Hint, hint. And if you'd like to become one of those patrons that I mentioned, our financial supporters, you can do that on patreon.com slash FISC. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. And for our friends of the FISC, we do have a few items there for you. There are several bonus Law 140s if you want to learn some more about the law. It's like going to law school, except we actually teach you something. So, all right. In terms of what we're going to cover today, I've only got one political story, and I'm not even really going to talk about it all that much. The back third, we're going to talk about prior restraint and the uh, Michael Cohen tapes of our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump. Uh, and then in the middle, of course, we have 24 pages of criminal justice fuckery. So this is going to be a long episode. Like last time, I'm going to blaze through it, kind of summarizing things where normally I would give you full quotes because I don't want this to take forever. So the only political story that I was going to mention this week is that some Congress critters, including Mark Meadows, Republican from North Carolina, have filed a resolution of impeachment against Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who is overseeing the Mueller investigation. And you have to wonder why the Republican Congress critters are so eager to have this type of stuff out in the public domain because, one, it's just not going to happen. You're not going to get two-thirds of the Senate to convict Rosenstein in the first place. But the second piece is that the House of Representatives and the Senate both set their own rules of procedure. So if any of you have ever read Robert's Rules of Parliamentary Procedure, uh, well, it's Robert's Rules of Order, but it's about parliamentary procedure, that sets out how a lot of meetings are conducted. And then the House has its own special stuff that has been crafted over literally hundreds of years, and you can actually see those online. And under Rule 14, there are certain types of resolutions that are considered privileged resolutions that can be forced to the floor for a vote. And those types of things typically tend to involve revenue bills, but there's a few different types of categories. And at the very least, when you file a privileged resolution, you know that you can force other members of the House to vote on it. That's not what this was. This was just a plain Jane resolution, not even full-blown articles of impeachment. It's just a resolution that says he should be impeached, and the reasons for it are a joke. I'll let you go find the actual contents on uh, – use Thomas, thomas.loc.gov at the Library of Congress to find bill text. But it's all garbage. They're not actually planning to impeach or remove Rosenstein. They're solely doing this for political posturing. Uh, Congress critter Meadows, you might recall, was one of several Congress critters who nominated Donald Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize because he agreed to have a sit-down with North Korea without actually accomplishing anything. Um, so just know this is all garbage, and a lot of these people have no business being in Congress, have no business earning several thousands upon thousands of dollars of your taxpayer money in their own salaries, plus their office staff, and they should all be voted out in November. So that's it for the politics. Let's jump into criminal justice, because that's why all of you are here in court news out of the Second Circuit. Uh, cases, Juan Martin Zuniga Perez versus Jeff Sessions, and this is a appeal from the Board of Immigration Appeals. So this basically, this guy is getting deported, and he argued in front of an immigration judge that he should not be deported because the police unlawfully found out that he was an undocumented immigrant. 
The immigration judge denied that request to toss out evidence, never even had a hearing on it. The Board of Immigration Appeals affirmed that dismissal. Well, the Second Circuit disagreed, and they have actually vacated the decision and sent it back for further proceedings. But listen to some of the fuckery that the police have employed here. From the opinion, it says, quote, Petitioners, citizens of Mexico residing in upstate New York, were arrested during a search of their residence by law enforcement officers purportedly looking for a criminal suspect pursuant to a, subquote, felony search warrant. In removal proceedings before the immigration judge, both petitioners moved to suppress the evidence obtained during the search, arguing that the search violated the Fourth Amendment because it was conducted without a warrant, consent, or exigent circumstances. And, even assuming the existence of a warrant, the search exceeded its scope. Although petitioners submitted affidavits in support of their motion, the judge denied it without holding a suppression hearing. The question before us is whether the judge should have held an evidentiary hearing in light of the evidence submitted by petitioners, and we hold that because petitioners made a sufficient showing of an egregious constitutional violation, they were entitled to a hearing. Basically, the New York State Police brought along Customs and Border Protection for, subquote, translation assistance. Not their own special translators, not just one translator. They bought multiple translators, and putting that in air quotes because they weren't actually translators. And then they enter the house. They don't find this guy they're looking for. And then after they've concluded he's not there, they decide to ask all of their residents whether or not they're in the country legally. So all of this all is bullshit. And as part of this bullshit, there are certain forms that the federal officials have to fill out. They're called I-213s. And they spell out some of the bullshit. But the court notes there's a lot of fuckery going on here. So from their reasoning section, we're going to give you a link to the opinion in the show notes. It's long. You can read the whole thing. But here's how the court looks at it. They say, quote, the facts set forth in the form I-213s and the affidavits show that the troopers and Border Patrol agents went to the house because they were looking for, subquote, known Hispanic migrants. The forms say as much. Even assuming the suspected presence of a fugitive was a reason for the search, the forms suggest that the presence of known Hispanic migrants was also a purpose. The forms do not, however, identify any specific or articulable facts to believe that anyone in the house had committed a crime other than the suspected fugitive. Moreover, petitioners' affidavits established that they were questioned only after the troopers had determined that the suspected fugitive was not present. The government has offered no explanation as to why the agents decided at that point to ask petitioners about their country of citizenship and immigration status other than that the agents were looking for Hispanic migrants. Hence, petitioners presented substantial evidence that the search was improperly based on race. Second, although the government relies on the existence of a felony search warrant, petitioners have raised fair questions as to whether a warrant existed, and, if so, whether the search exceeded its scope. Moreover, petitioners' affidavits established that neither consent nor exigent circumstances existed to justify a warrantless search. DHS did not provide a copy of the warrant. The Form I-213s refer only to a felony search warrant without specifying where and when it was issued and without revealing its terms or scope. The Form I-213 seemed to suggest that the warrant was issued in part because of the suspected presence of known Hispanic migrants in the residence. If that is the case, we have serious doubts as to the sufficiency of the application for the warrant. It is also unclear why, if the purpose was to apprehend a fugitive, a subquote felony search warrant was issued rather than an arrest warrant. 
Petitioners have also raised a fair question as to whether the real purpose of the search was not to locate a fugitive, but to apprehend known Hispanic migrants. We call that a pretext in legalese. The state troopers were accompanied by not one, but two Border Patrol agents. While the Form I-213s state that the agents were present to provide translation assistance, it seems odd that the state troopers did not have their own interpreters and instead imposed on two agents from another federal law enforcement agency to provide translation services for one suspected fugitive. These facts support the notion that law enforcement was targeting Hispanic migrant workers from the start. Moreover, even assuming the state troopers had a warrant, fair questions exist as to whether the interrogation exceeded its scope. Of course, this inquiry is made all the more difficult because the warrant has not been made available to examine. If, as the government asserts, the warrant authorized a search of the home to apprehend a fugitive, once the law enforcement agents ascertained that the fugitive was not present, their mission was complete, and any subsequent questioning was arguably beyond the scope of the warrant. A fair question exists as to whether the agents had any proper basis under the warrant to question petitioners about their immigration status. Fair questions also exist as to whether petitioners were in custody when they were interrogated and whether the questioning was conducted in coercive circumstances. So it goes on from there. The reason why I've shared that with you is that that is an astonishing holding from a court of appeals. Now, we've talked before about our immigration system and how immigrants don't really get as many protections as native-born Americans. And even in the native-born context, a lot of times evidence that police seize illegally gets admitted anyway. But to have the Court of Appeals say, well, at the very least, you got to have a hearing is a big deal. Now, the end result could still be the same. This is going to be remanded back to the immigration judge who might decide it could all be admissible anyway, and then it will come up on appeal again. And whether or not the Court of Appeals hears it is going to be another matter entirely. But that's, that's very strong language in a federal appellate court opinion about the reach of what police can do when it comes to trying to do these immigration raids. So that's it on the, oh God, excuse me, forgive me all, bear with me as we're dealing with this particular recording. I've got some kind of sinus issues and that's affecting my voice. So that little squeakiness there that you just heard, that's what, uh, that's what that was. Bear with me as I periodically have mic stop so I can drink water and everything else. That's it for the court news this week. In general research news, uh, Case Western Reserve University has released a new study that basically confirms that red light cameras do not improve public safety and do not reduce car accidents. From the abstract of that study, we'll give you a link to the whole thing, but from the abstract, it says, quote, numerous cities have enacted electronic monitoring programs at traffic intersections in an effort to reduce the high number of vehicle accidents. The rationale is that the higher expected fines for running a red light will induce drivers to stop and lead to fewer crossroad collisions. However, the cameras also incentivize drivers to accept a greater accident risk from stopping. We evaluate the termination of a monitoring program via a voter referendum using 12 years of geocoded police accident data. We find that the cameras change the composition of accidents, but there's no evidence of a reduction in total accidents or in injuries. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of you. These cameras were put in place not for public safety, but to raise money. They were trying to find more ways to issue more tickets, not to help the public. But we'll give you a link to that study. In BuzzFeed, they looked at Amazon's facial recognition technology that they've been just doling out to police departments. The ACLU took photos of all of the members of Congress, fed it into that system, 
And what it shows is that a good number of Congress critters were flagged as matching these particular mugshots. Now, look, I'm the first one to say that most Congress critters are criminals anyway, but this is bad. You know, you have more departments using this technology and they're getting false positives. And spoiler alert, most of the false positives happen to involve people of color. So we'll give you a link to the full story, but one of the key quotes is, quote, Recognition, with the K, that's the name of Amazon's technology, incorrectly identified more than two dozen lawmakers as people who have been arrested for a crime, and the false matches were disproportionately people of color. Nearly 40% of recognition's false matches in the test were people of color, even though they make up only 20% of Congress. Six members of the Congressional Black Caucus, including noted civil rights leader Representative John Lewis, were each identified as a match for a mugshot in the recognition database. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to any of you because of the limits of technology. Facial recognition is basically taking the light pattern of your face and turning it into an algorithm. So if you think, for example, of the standard red, green, blue color scheme that your computer uses, your phone uses, you have roughly 16.7 million different colors under that system. And there's 256 possible settings for red, for green, and for blue. Those different combinations create those 16.7 million colors. It's 256 times 256 times 256. Pure black with absolutely no color at all is 000. Zero red, zero green, zero blue. There is no color there. The pixels are turned off entirely. Pure white is 255, 255, 255. The red pixel, the green pixel, the blue pixel are set at their absolute maximum setting as high as they possibly can go. By virtue of how that works, there's going to be a narrower difference, a narrower range of possible values, a narrower differential when you're comparing non-white faces versus white faces. Because my face is a brighter complexion, my the numbers are going to be higher. They're going to be closer to the 255, 255, 255. Realistically, it's probably going to be like 180-ish, give or take, because I'm tan. I'm not actually white, but you get my point. Compared to someone who's a darker complexion, they're going to be closer to the 000 side of the scale. And what you do with facial recognition is it's taking those values and comparing them against the photo in the system – and the better match is going to come in the data set that has the broader range. The more variance you have in the algorithm, the more likely you are to get a correct match. The less variance you have, the more likely you're going to get a false positive. That's an inevitability of facial recognition technology. That's not going to be fixable. I don't care how advanced the technology gets. It's not going to change. You can increase your reliability, but you're still going to have a disproportionate number of false positives among people who have a darker skin tone. So that's out of BuzzFeed News. In the Washington Post, there's a new analysis that basically confirms that homicides of black victims are solved at lower rates than homicides of white victims. You probably have figured that out based on our past stories. Uh, a couple snippets from that one. It says, quote, In the past decade, police in 52 of the nation's largest cities have failed to make an arrest 
and nearly 26,000 killings, according to a Washington Post analysis of homicide arrest data. In more than 18,600 of those cases, which if you're doing math, that's almost three quarters of them, uh, the victim was black. Black victims who accounted for the majority of homicides were the least likely of any racial group to have their killings result in an arrest. While police arrested someone in 63% of the killings of white victims, they did so in just 47% of those with black victims. The failure to solve black homicides fuels a vicious cycle. It deepens distrust of police among black residents, making them less likely to cooperate in investigations, leading to even fewer arrests. As a result, criminals are emboldened and residents' fears are compounded. So we give you a link to the story as well as their data. They've got pretty cool infographics on the site, along with a link to their prior story. Uh, we talked about basically what are free kill zones where you can murder someone and get away with it. We talked about that in episode 69. Uh, we'll give you a link to all of that stuff in the show notes. In federal news, out of the Boston Globe, there's a new story that says air marshals are monitoring random travelers for sport, even though they're not suspected of actually doing anything wrong. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, federal air marshals have begun following ordinary U.S. citizens not suspected of a crime or on any terrorist watch list and collecting extensive information about their movements and behavior under a new domestic surveillance program that is drawing criticism from within the agency. The agency, of course, is TSA, the Transportation Security Administration. Uh, the previously undisclosed program called Quiet Skies specifically targets travelers who, subquote, are not under investigation by any agency and are not in the terrorist screening database. The internal bulletin describes the program's goal as thwarting threats to commercial aircraft posed by unknown or partially known terrorists and gives the agency broad discretion over which air travelers to focus on and how closely they are tracked. But some air marshals in interviews and internal communications shared with the Globe say the program has them tasked with shadowing travelers who pose no real threat. A businesswoman who happened to have traveled through a Mideast hotspot, in one case, a Southwest Airlines flight attendant. In another, a fellow federal law enforcement officer. So these guys are basically in the midst of trying to track random people. They accidentally track other federal uh, Leos. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. We'll give you a link to the whole story. I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. It's a fantastic waste of taxpayer money. And it's fucking creepy that you have the federal government surveilling you for no apparent reason. But that is how TSA works. Uh, out of ProPublica, there's an expose on these youth detention centers and how they are basically a goldmine for child molesters. Uh, so I'm going to do a quick sidebar. So a few podcasts back, I mentioned that I had done an interview with the Law Sisters podcast. That episode is out. So you check out, uh, I think it's at Law Sisters on Twitter, pull up the episode. And as part of my conversation with them, one of the questions that was asked is how are people being screened to decide whether or not they get to work in these detention facilities for kids? Are they at risk? And my response was, yes, they're absolutely at risk. If you like molesting children, this is a dream job for you. And someone listened to that snippet and was very offended. They can't believe that I would make that type of claim. Well, y'all, this is common fucking sense. I mean, we've really, we've done so many stories of jailers doing this type of shit. You shouldn't be surprised. And this report basically confirms it. So ProPublica used state record laws to request essentially 911 calls for 70 of the 100 immigrant youth shelters. And here are some examples of what they found. Uh, in 2015, 
a 15-year-old Honduran boy woke up in his Tucson, Arizona shelter multiple times to find one of the workers tickling his stomach and rubbing his penis, rubbing the 15-year-old's penis. That guy was later convicted of molestation. Uh, In 2016, a 15-year-old boy in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was forced into oral sex at one of the shelters. Uh, In 2017, a... A 17-year-old boy was sexually harassed and groped by a staff member also at the Tucson, Arizona shelter. The boy locked himself in a bathroom stall for days when he was approached after bringing up the fact that he was being molested by this guy. Uh, Let's see what else. We have staff members sending nude photos to minors. A teenager threatening to rape another teen and got away with it. Uh, Looks like in all there were 125 calls. These are just the known situations where sex offenses were committed at these shelters for kids. So I get that people are offended that I make claims like that, but at this point, it's the fucking truth. And it's the truth enough that we're already getting all of these stories every single week, and none of this is comprehensive. None of the shit that we do on this podcast is comprehensive. This is just the stuff that we find out about. The government does not want to know about all of the fuckery that takes place, they don't go looking for it. The only time it comes up is when a victim complains. If you actually had bona fide oversight, you would find this shit is super fucking common. So that's all of the research stuff this week. Uh, I got a general, it can't really pin it down to a particular location, so it's not going to go in the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. But if y'all haven't seen these stupid fucking lip-sync challenge videos where entire police departments spend taxpayer money to put together slick video productions lip-syncing to different songs just so they can be relatable to the fucking community, I'll give you a link. Uh, I think it's Patch has a list of like the 10 best, quote-unquote. This is so fucking stupid. I get it. Everyone needs to have fun at their fucking job. And on the upside, at least they're not out summarily executing unarmed minorities when they're doing these videos. But people would be in the streets with pitchforks and torches had this been done by their local DMV personnel or their local Congress critters. The fact is, if you choose to go work for the government, if you choose to accept a paycheck that my taxes help fund, you got to give up certain things. And that includes using public resources to do a fucking YouTube video. Grow up. Uh, In state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, we have out of California, uh, and and the title of the podcast this week is going to be Euphemistically Speaking, because I've got at least three stories where the the reporting is like so... Uh, you're, you're going to get it. So let's start with the story out of Los Angeles. Los Angeles County is doing an investigation into secret societies. And I'm putting that in air quotes uh, from the story. It says, quote, Los Angeles County Sheriff Jim McDonald has launched a comprehensive inquiry into secret deputy cliques. McDonald's announcement at a meeting of the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission comes two weeks after allegations surfaced that as many as 20 deputies at the Compton station have matching tattoos featuring a skeleton holding a rifle. Watchdogs said the revelations were alarming given the department's long history of secret societies that promoted excessive force and enforced a code of silence. McDonnell, who was elected in 2014 on a promise to reform a corrupt agency, said he is partnering with the Sheriff's Inspector General and County Council to study why the groups form, whether they are exclusive, if members are required to act a certain way, and if they endorse bad behavior. Renegade cliques erode public confidence as well as internal morale, and they will not be tolerated within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, McDonnell said in a statement. 
Secret societies in the department date at least as far back as the 1970s and have had names like the Regulators, Grim Reapers, and the Jump Out Boys. Some of the cliques have been accused of endorsing highly aggressive policing. Now, where I'm from, as a guy who happens to defend weed users, weed dealers, that sort of thing, uh, a secret society with a code of silence and matching tattoos and excessive force, we call that a fucking gang. Out of the city of Los Angeles, so not the county, we're now with the city police. Uh, this is a this is such a ridiculous fucking story. So basically, a guy was accused of killing his grandmother. He ran into a Trader Joe's, and LAPD came in like fucking a big dick gunslinging paramilitary group. And in the process, they shot and killed a hostage who happened to be the manager of the store. We'll give you a link to the story. But when I tweeted about this on Twitter, a bunch of people were like, oh, you can't say that. That's such a bad take. What would you want them to do, wait? Well, let me ask you, had they waited, what would the difference be? Let's assume that the accused killer would have killed somebody. You end up with the exact same outcome by the police killing somebody. Whereas had the police not gone in immediately with guns blazing, had they tried to set up a negotiator, had they just let the situation play out, had they let the guy run away and just got him later because they knew who he was, odds are just as likely that at least one fewer person would have died. So you might remember, we've talked about the government and they're saving people, killing them to save them. Uh, You had Bear County, Texas, where they killed that uh, nine-year-old, or was he six? I can't remember. But basically, they had a suspected car thief trying to break into the guy's trailer, and they killed the car thief dead, and in the process, killed the boy. Uh, you had the FBI, where they were trying to save a hostage during a raid and shot him in the head. You had the guy that we talked about uh, several months back who was trying to protect his family from a gunman at a Dollar General store, and the police shot him and let the gunman go. Uh, it just It's stupid stuff. Like We go in with an expectation that these guys are the military and that if they kill a few people, that's just collateral damage. That's not the fucking role of the police. That is not why the police exist. They do not go in, guns blazing, to blow people away, shoot first and ask questions later. That's not how they fucking operate. But we'll give you the story, too. It's out of L.A. In Santa Monica, we have the Third Rule of Fisk Hollywood edition. Uh, There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Ving Rhames was basically held at gunpoint inside of his own home. Uh, If you're not familiar with Ving Rhames, he's a very famous actor. He's in the Mission Impossible series. He's been in movies going back to when I was a kid. Uh, And he talked about this on the Clay Kane show on Sirius XM, where police basically knocked on the door loudly. He opened it wearing, you know, just his shorts because he was watching TV. And they've got him at gunpoint, and they stay with him for a while until one of the police recognizes him. Doesn't recognize him because he's an actor in Santa Monica, California. Recognizes him because Rames's kids and the cops' kids played basketball together. Uh, so they basically explained to him a white lady called 911 and said a large black man was breaking into the house. So the SWAT team showed up. And the crazy part is when stories like this happen, there's a knee-jerk reaction among certain people and they tend to be white, that say, oh, he's lying. This absolutely didn't happen. Well, the Santa Monica Police Department released a statement on Facebook confirming that's exactly what the fuck happened. Like, this shit actually happened. And if this sounds familiar to you, the reason why we put it under the third rule is that this shit has been happening all the time. So uh, Henry Louis Gates, the, the scholar, 
the one that back in Obama's first year as president was arrested for trying to break into his own home. Uh, it's the one where Obama said that police acted stupidly, and of course everyone lost their fucking mind over it. And then you had the beer summit between Obama, Gates, and the cop. Uh, Dr. Dre, famous rapper, entrepreneur, first billionaire in the hip-hop industry, uh, handcuffed in his own driveway back in 2016. We talked about that on Twitter. Uh, T.I., another rapper, was arrested because the guard wouldn't let him into his own gated community he, he lived in, and that was just in May. Uh, you know, we've become a nation of snitches. We really have. And what's going to happen is when you're this, you know, willing to snitch on anybody for anything without you actually knowing what the fuck is going on, what's going to happen is that black folks are going to disproportionately be the victims. So that's all out of California. In Colorado, there was a fight club in a local jail complete with prizes. From the story, it says, quote, wearing a tiara and posing for a camera. El Paso County Sheriff's Deputy Sandra Rincon smiled next to a cake with two candles on top, displaying the number 50. It wasn't her birthday. Instead, the sheriff's office has confirmed Rincon was being crowned champion of what one county jailer dubbed the Fight Club, an off-the-books contest in which deputies at the jail tracked each time they used force against an inmate, ranging from handcuffing to punching and kicking, and awarded bragging rights to the winners. Rincon, a deputy since 2007, won top honors in 2014 for more than four dozen such encounters. Along with Rincon's cake, the one in the picture, came a gift bag and a paper plate that read, Princess, court records show. This is just a periodic reminder that how we treat people who are incarcerated is a fucking abomination. Because remember, at most jails, the bulk of the people who are there haven't actually been convicted of a crime. They're waiting trial, and they can't bond out. Uh, so that's out of Colorado and Florida. We got a lot of Florida stories this week, and we're going to start in Biscayne Park. This is the third story we've had on the Biscayne Park Police Department. If you want to listen to the prior ones, listen to episode 72 and 76. But the reason why we're talking about them today is that we've had the first guilty plea uh, to the practice of basically arresting random black people for sport and framing them for crimes. From the story, it says, quote, The federal investigation into a handful of former Biscayne Park police officers accused of framing innocent people widened this week when another cop was accused of falsifying arrest warrants for two men at the direction of the police chief. Guillermo Ravello, who was fired from the force earlier this year, pleaded guilty Thursday in Miami federal court to a conspiracy charge that he violated the rights of the falsely accused men. One charged with a pair of home break-ins in 2013, the other with five vehicle burglaries the following year. The charges against the two men were eventually dropped. Both men were black. Ravello, 37, also pleaded guilty to using excessive force during a traffic stop when he struck a handcuffed suspect in the face with his fist. Ravello's admission to the false police arrest intensifies the spotlight on former Biscayne Park Police Chief Raimundo Ateziano. The 52-year-old was indicted in June, along with two other former police officers, Raul Fernandez and Charlie Dayub, on a conspiracy charge of pinning four unsolved home burglaries on a 16-year-old so the chief could claim a perfect clearance rate on property crimes in 2013. That teen also was black. On Friday, Assistant U.S. Attorney Harry Wallace added an additional charge to a Teziano civil rights conspiracy indictment stemming from one of Ravello's arrests. Meanwhile, Fernandez and Deyu plan to change their plea to guilty. At a hearing set for August 3rd, prosecutors say both officers were ordered by Teziano to frame the teenager by falsifying arrest affidavits. So if you're doing the math, that means you now have three police officers 
who are all cooperating with federal investigators to go after this police chief. So you're going to have three total officers pleading guilty already. Uh, Out of Miami, there is a new police brutality lawsuit that's been filed by Jose Farquharson. That's a long last name, and I'm terrible at pronouncing it. But essentially, we're going to give you a link to the story. Uh, A car almost hit him as police were watching nearby. His car sped past. And the guy said, do your fucking job and stop the cars from speeding to police. That's First Amendment protected expression. It's not very nice, but it is protected speech. And the police beat the shit out of him. One of them said, kiss my ass. His name is Luis Arquia or Arcia. Uh, said, kiss my ass and just basically pounded the guy into the ground. You look at his pictures in the news story and he's pretty thoroughly fucked up. Um, so we'll give you a link to that. But for Farquharson... Uh, filed a complaint with the Miami Police Department alleging excessive force, and the department said that it was unsupported. Surprise. So now he's filing suit. Uh, In North Miami Beach, which apparently is separate from Miami, I don't really know Florida all that well, Uh, in this case, an officer has been fired because she beat the shit out of a pregnant woman. From that story, it says, quote, the North Miami Beach police officer accused of kicking an eight-month pregnant woman has been fired, the department announced Friday. Officer Ambar Pacheco was charged with aggravated battery after she attacked the woman in South Beach on Wednesday night. So as you go through and read the story, apparently the officer was with her sister in this particular location. The pregnant lady was with her boyfriend in the same location. The sister and the boyfriend exchanged words. And for that, the officer decided to beat up the pregnant lady. Her exact words were, she, quote, beat the shit out of the victim. And then said later on, quote, she didn't know who, but she kicked somebody. So that lady has been terminated. You will be shocked, I'm sure, to know that this is not the first time she's been in trouble. She actually has a criminal record for theft back when she was 18. So apparently being a thief is good enough to make you a North Miami Beach police officer. Surprise. Uh, Out of Palm Beach County. We have the third rule of Fisk again. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, Because if you listen to our last week episode from Minnesota, where a bunch of rape kits were tested but no actual arrests were made, you have the same situation in Palm Beach County. Uh, Quote, in December 2015, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office embarked on a $1 million project to test 1,500 rape evidence kits that had been sitting on its shelves for as long as 40 years. The initiative came on the heels of both state and nationwide efforts to test DNA in years-old rape cases. Similar efforts in other cities have led to dozens, even hundreds of arrests, giving victims long denied a chance at justice, the opportunity to face their attackers in court. As of March, nearly 1,000 rape kits had been tested, producing 140 DNA matches to suspects in a national crime database. The testing created dozens of new leads in unsolved cases, yet many have since been closed and PBSO deputies have failed to make a single arrest. A Palm Beach Post review of more than 1,200 pages of police reports also shows that deputies did not attempt to contact either the victim or the suspect in at least half of the cases with new leads. Several suspects in those cases went on to get arrested in other rapes while the kits containing their DNA collected dust. This includes a man who later was charged in the rapes of at least five women in Palm Beach County and a man accused of raping a woman who used a wheelchair just weeks before DNA from a 2012 kit linked him to the rape of a woman from Bill Glade. So the story goes on from there. It's another long read. 
basically same situation as Minnesota. You have police not doing their fucking job when it involves sexual assault or rape. Uh, out of Tampa, Hillsborough County has suspended four paramedics because a 30-year-old woman died from a stroke after the EMTs refused to treat her. They didn't even examine her. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Hillsborough County has suspended four fire rescue paramedics for failing to transport or even check vital signs for a 30-year-old woman who showed symptoms of a stroke a few days after she underwent a cesarean section. The woman's mother ended up driving her to Brandon Regional Hospital, but it was too late. Crystal Galloway was so sick, she was flown by helicopter across town to Tampa General Hospital, where she later died. The four paramedics were placed on administrative leave with pay, so that's paid vacation. Uh, Hillsborough County Administrator Mike Merrill said Monday, he said, Hillsborough County Fire Rescue failed to provide good care to the woman. So 911 was called and told that the woman had a swollen lip, was drooling, and likely suffering from a stroke. Police arrived and confirmed that she was likely suffering from a stroke. The EMTs got there and decided that they weren't going to examine her, didn't transport her, and wrote in their notes for the file that they could not locate her, that she couldn't even be found. Uh, so on a, there's a GoFundMe page now set up by Galloway's mother, who is trying to raise money for the two daughters that the woman left behind, including a five-year-old baby. So when we talk about systemic racism and the way this all plays out, oh, I didn't mention that, Galloway is black, surprise. This is the type of thing that we're talking about. You now have a five-day-old, sorry, did I say five-year-old? I can't remember, a five-day-old baby, brand spanking new, literally that now has to be taken care of by her family, and if not by the family, then by society, because the people that we pay with our tax dollars refuse to do their fucking job and then lied about it after the fact, and even though they're being suspended, they're suspended with pay. You're getting a fucking paid vacation for killing somebody, in essence. So that's out of Florida. In Georgia, the Athens-Clark Police Department, first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit after they are being recorded. Uh, a video went viral of two officers pinning a nine-year-old black boy to the ground. And after it went viral, the police released a statement and said, well, you got to watch the whole video. The nine-year-old boy lunged at the officers, you know, watch the body cam. Well, I did. And you watch the whole body cam, and it's actually worse than the snippet. The officer's screaming at everybody like a little like, sorry, forgive me. Forgive the language choice there. He's screaming like a kid. Like, if you were to have a child throwing a temper tantrum, that's how this officer sounds on the fucking video. Absolutely no effort to de-escalate any situations or explain what the hell's going on. There's no violence going on. It's just the people shouting. Well, figure out a way how to deal with that fucking situation instead of constantly raising your voice and yelling at people. Of course a fucking nine-year-old's going to go nuts when he sees what's happening. So we'll give you a link to the story. We'll give you a link to the video. But it's one of those situations where the videos, the full video is actually worse than the snippet that you see online. Uh, out of Kentucky, in Louisville, uh, records released by a Kentucky police department show a former officer has been suspended for calling a black teen a subquote wild animal that needs to be put down. WDRB-TV obtained documents from the Louisville Metro Police Department's internal investigation into Brian Smith. According to the documents, the chief planned to fire Smith for three Facebook posts that advocate violence against others and fostered mistrust of the police. But 10 days later, he said a 30-day suspension would be sufficient. 
Police say Smith ultimately resigned in April. Smith was investigated after a complaint that his Facebook page demonstrated subquote deep-seated bias against minority communities. Another post said someone should beat Madonna half to death with a microphone for studying the Quran. Now, all of this is bad enough, but they really buried the lead in here because you're you're going to be shocked, I'm sure, to find this isn't the first time he's been in trouble. But it continues, quote, Smith was also suspended without pay for 25 days for sending inappropriate text messages to his ex-girlfriend's minor daughter. So apparently, in addition to being a racist, this particular officer is also a pedophile. Uh, Out of Idaho, we have another one of these euphemisms. And listen to the headline, inmates hacked system to get credits. Now listen to that word, hacked. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Idaho prison officials say 364 inmates exploited vulnerable software in the JPay tablets they use for email, music, and games to collectively transfer nearly a quarter million dollars into their own accounts. The department's special investigations unit discovered the problem earlier this month, and the improper conduct involved no taxpayer dollars, a spokesman said. The handheld computer tablets are popular in prisons across the country, and they're made available to Idaho inmates through a contract with CenturyLink and JPay. The tablets allow inmates to email their families and friends, purchase and listen to music, or play simple electronic games. JPay is proud to provide services that allow incarcerated individuals to communicate with friends and family, access educational programming, and enjoy positive entertainment options that help prevent behavioral issues, a JPay spokesman said in a prepared statement. Idaho Department of Corrections spokesman Jeff Ray said that 50 inmates credited their accounts in amounts exceeding $1,000. The largest amount credited by a single inmate was just under $10,000. This conduct was intentional, not accidental. It required a knowledge of the JPay system and multiple actions by every inmate who exploited the system's vulnerability to improperly credit their account. Here's the thing, and this is why this is what this is fucking hilarious. This is just funny. All right. So these products, these tablets, are wildly exploitative. This is a huge moneymaker for both the tablet provider and the jails. Because, for example, one email costs 50 cents. Now, that's not a lot of money, but if you think about it, the marginal cost of an email is zero. It's absolutely no money at all. You, you could theoretically argue that there's some infinitesimal amount for the electricity spent to charge the device and the electricity spent for the router and everything else. But the marginal cost for an email is functionally zero. I know because I get fucking thousands of emails every single day, and I know y'all aren't paying the, – the spam people aren't paying that much to send me that shit. All right, so you've got functionally no marginal cost to the email, but then the prisons are actually saving money because by having these tablets available, the inmates are better behaved. You have fewer infractions, you have fewer injuries, you have to pay less money for medical care. You don't have to worry about having, you know, workers comp and stuff for your jailers because they're not getting injured as much. So the taxpayers are saving money by having these tablets available. In addition, The companies sign these monopoly contracts to prevent competition. So they roll out shit software that's proprietary that, you know, even if it sucks, oh well. And what happened in this particular case is that the exploit that they're using, the hack to use the particular verbiage, is if you were to add a product to your cart and the JPay system, but then remove the product later without actually buying it, you get a credit for the stuff that you didn't buy. Like, it's just plain Jane software bug shit 
that any competent developer would have found before ruling out the system. But they don't have to be competent because they have these monopoly contracts that they tend to get through making political deals and promising kickbacks to the jails. So this is all bullshit. I mean, really, more power to the inmates that they were able to figure this out. I hope when they get out, they're offered jobs as fucking quality assurance staff for a tech company. But the notion that they've somehow hacked the tablets is fucking ludicrous. Uh, out of Illinois and Chicago, the Chicago Police Department is continuing to fight tooth and nail to avoid documenting their work. Uh, we're going to give you a link to a local Chicago blog that has multiple links in it. It's not a, a typical news entity, but their links are good. So that's why I'm going to give you this particular blog about it. But essentially, the city of Chicago is negotiating with the Illinois Attorney General's office about the consent decree that is going to be in place to help, you know, basically have them stop violating people's rights with impunity. And one of the key pieces is that the state wants them to document when they point their guns at people. And Chicago PD is firmly opposed to that because, you know, when you have a situation like this where you don't want anyone to see what you're doing, it's usually because you're into some fuck shit. So we'll give you a link to that. That's in Illinois. In Indiana, out of South Bend, there is a long read from the South Bend Tribune and ProPublica who published this uh, expose jointly. But it's involving the prosecution of Keith Cooper and his co-defendant, Christopher Parrish. And it's essentially – like it's a long story. It's a fascinating read. But what you find is this guy got convicted for a robbery that he didn't commit. The DNA actually excluded him from being at the scene entirely. Uh, his co-defendant was acquitted at trial. But you have at least two dirty cops who helped ensure eyewitness identifications of these guys by violating the law. You then had a DNA report excluding the guy as an assailant, but the defense attorney, for whatever reason, uh, gave a stipulation that said that he could not be excluded as the possible person, even though the DNA report itself said very much the opposite. You had lay witnesses lie on the stand about a voice identification uh, and you had the police witness lie about the photo identification, and you have prosecutors basically continuing to insist this guy is guilty even after the forensic evidence confirms that he's not. So the whole story is incredibly long. It covers two different trials and appeals and the ensuing civil suits, but goddamn, like it's everyone in the system is completely fucked up in that particular story. So we give you a link to it. Uh, out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. We'll start in New Orleans where an apology has been issued by the mayor because two New Orleans Police Department officers beat the fuck out of a military veteran because he was Hispanic. From that story, it says, quote, New Orleans City Council President Jason Williams issued a public apology Thursday morning to George Gomez, the man who was hospitalized after a Tuesday fight with two off-duty city police officers. Williams expressed remorse on behalf of the city at the beginning of Thursday's council meeting and said the criminal justice committee he oversees would look closely at the background checks done on the officers involved. Subquote, after a few drinks, a couple of new officers engaged in despicable, repulsive, racist acts of violence against one of our fellow citizens. A good man by every account, a patriot, a veteran, a good neighbor. Former NOPD officers Spencer Sutton and John Gallman were terminated Wednesday after an eyewitness and surveillance footage revealed them to be the aggressors in a fight at a mid-city bar with Gomez. The altercation began when Gallman demanded to know if Gomez, who was wearing camouflage pants, had in fact served in the military. He then asked if Gomez, a U.S. native who was raised in Honduras, was, quote, American. 
So we'll give you a link to that story. Basically, originally the police said that this guy came in and tried to start a fight with them. Of course, they lied because their security video and proved that they were, in fact, the ones starting the fight. Uh, out of Shreveport, a police officer is now free after he's been charged with battery. From that story, it says, quote, Corporal Joshua Mayfield was arrested on a warrant on Thursday, booking records show. He had been off duty since May 23rd when police chief Alan Crump put him on paid leave, that's paid vacation, uh, pending an administrative investigation into a dispute between Mayfield and another officer. That inquiry indicated that Mayfield possibly had broken the law, so Crump ordered a criminal investigation. That's all there is to this particular story. We don't know what happened, but at some point, Battery is beating somebody, so he must have hit someone somewhere. We'll give you more info on that if any of it happens to pop up. If any of our listeners in Louisiana happen to know more details other than this four-sentence story, please feel free to pass it on. Out of Maryland. Now, this story is in Aberdeen. It kind of feels like it should be a Baltimore story, you know, to make it qualify for the fourth rule of Fisk that The Wire was a documentary. But it's not. It's in Aberdeen. But the reason why I bring it up is that the police shot somebody repeatedly, and the story, the headline, I'm just going to read it to you. Aberdeen police identify officer who shot a man wielding a comb. I want to repeat that, wielding a comb. Now, where I'm from, if you're wielding a comb, that means you're unarmed. But they shot the guy anyway because supposedly this comb uh, they thought was a shank. And they decided to try and shoot him dead, but he survived. So we'll happen to see what he says when he wakes up. Supposedly he's in stable condition. Hopefully he'll survive and can talk. Uh, but just know that if you're in Maryland and you're wielding a comb, uh, that's a basis for you to be shot dead. Out of Mississippi, we got two stories, three stories. Is that it? Damn, we got a lot of stuff from Mississippi this week. Uh, Adam Meridian. We have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, A Mississippi police officer has been fired after a dash cam video showed him using excessive force on a suspect who was already handcuffed and kneeling on the ground. The video, recorded July 16th, begins with an unidentified officer approaching a van. The van moves a few feet before the officer draws his gun and gets the driver out of the vehicle. Police Chief Benny DuBose, who released the footage, says that drawing the gun was justified. It's what happened next that wasn't. After the first officer successfully handcuffs the suspect, other officers arrive on the scene. One of them, Daniel Starks, takes it upon himself to rough up the suspect, even though the suspect was not resisting at the time Starks does this. The men appear to exchange words, and this prompts Starks to rough up the suspect a second time. Then he draws his stun gun and shoots the suspect in the neck without apparent cause. Now, the video is actually worse than it sounds, because this is all recorded on dash cam, and the tase to the neck it shoots is a bit of a misnomer, because he's got the taser in what's called drive stun mode, which is where you use it in a handheld fashion, you're not shooting the prongs out. And that actually hurts even worse than when you're shot from a distance. So we'll give you a link to that story and the video. Uh, out of South Haven, there are no charges against the police who summarily executed Ishmael Lopez. This case we talked about way back last year, actually, July 31st, almost a year ago, uh, in episode 19, where the police admitted they went to the wrong home trying to serve a warrant on a completely different guy. Lopez answered the door and in the process was shot. And what you find in this particular story is he was actually shot in the back of the head. But I'm going to give you 
the story because I want you to listen to some of the wording because it highlights how this came about. From the story, it says, quote, the grand jury declined to indict the officers who shot and killed a man when they served a warrant at the wrong house. Ishmael Lopez was shot and killed by police while he stood inside the front door of his South Haven home in July 2017. District Attorney John Champion said he took the case to a grand jury in an effort to indict the officers on homicide charges. Champion failed to get the grand jury to return an indictment. Subquote, the grand jury was given all of the evidence and they decided not to indict. From my perspective, the case is closed. Now, it goes on from there. We're going to give you a link to the story, but I want you to listen to that because the fact is that quote from the DA was a giveaway that he did not want an indictment. Because remember, the role of a grand jury is not to determine guilt or innocence. We've talked about grand juries before. Go back to the Law 140 segment of Episode 20 about what grand juries are and how they work. But their sole job is to determine whether or not probable cause exists, whether or not there is a basis that a crime is there. And to do that, only the prosecution presents evidence, and the prosecution only presents that evidence that they want to support their case. They present their strongest evidence possible. So to give them all of the evidence means that you're giving them the reasons why they should not return a true bill. That's because you don't want an indictment to happen. You want to protect these bad officers who are so fucking incompetent that they went to the wrong home and shot a totally innocent man in the back of the head. How do you get shot in the back of the head? Well, guess what? That means you're turned around and walking away. So they've killed a guy as he's walking away from them as they've got the wrong guy in the first place. Well, then, in addition to all of this, and we're going to give you the story with everything, the fucking city released a statement that's just, you want to just smack the people around that wrote this. And they say, quote, Recently, DeSoto County District Attorney John Champion stated that the grand jury returned a no-true bill, which means that a decision by the citizens of DeSoto County was made to not indict any of the South Haven police officers involved in this incident. With completion of investigations by his office, the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the U.S. Department of Justice, the city of South Haven believes that the facts of this matter have been properly and sufficiently evaluated and therefore considers this matter closed. It has been very disheartening to watch the persecution of our officers by some both prematurely and inaccurately. A picture painted with partial and inaccurate information is easy to create and very influential when strategically circulated through media avenues, but can be very misleading and dangerous to those that value the truth. Look, dude, your police admitted that they had the wrong house, they had the wrong guy, and they shot him in the back of the fucking head. That was part of the information that the grand jury got. I don't know what other picture could be painted from that other than the fact your police are fucking incompetent and they're violent as hell. So that's out of South Haven. In Starkville, uh, a former Starkville police officer has surrendered to authorities on Monday after he was indicted for a shooting that occurred while he was on duty. From that story, it says, quote, Gary Wheeler of Starkville was indicted by an Octabeha. I'm probably, I know I'm fucking that up. O-K-T-I-B-B-E-H-A, whatever that particular county is. Uh, grand jury on one count of aggravated assault. The indictment states that on June 3rd of 2017, Wheeler, quote, purposely, knowingly, or recklessly under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life, caused serious injury to Zytarius Gandhi by shooting into Gandhi's vehicle and striking him in the legs and stomach. Gandhi survived the incident. 
Starkville Police Chief Frank Nichols released a statement saying the case from the moment of the shooting uh, had been turned over to the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and the Attorney General's office. He said Wheeler was put on paid administrative leave, that's paid vacation, during the investigation. Uh, so, quote, after returning to duty for a short period of time, the officer resigned for other employment. He actually went over to Mississippi State University, to that department. Now, here's the thing. This guy's been indicted for this shooting, for this particular uh, guy, and I decided that I was going to go look up how this was originally reported back in 2017 when the shooting took place. And I'm going to read you that particular story because I want you to ponder how it is that an officer is getting indicted on these particular facts. From the 2017 story, it says, quote, The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation released more details on Sunday regarding an officer-involved shooting incident in Starkville. MBI spokesman Warren Strain identified the suspect as 18-year-old Zaitarius Gandy. The incident occurred when Starkville Police Department officers responded to a shoplifting call. Strain said officers tried to make a traffic stop, but Gandy left the scene with officers in pursuit. The chase eventually led to the 600 block of South Wedgwood Road near the fringe of the Starkville Country Club golf course. When the car was stopped on the dead-end street, officers tried to pull Gandy from the vehicle, but he backed up and hit two SPD patrol cars in the small sedan. Strain said Gandy proceeded to try and run over the officers, who then fired shots. The vehicle then hit a resident's porch on the street. Before Gandy backed up, and officers fired additional shots. Gandy continued off-road and drove behind the house, exited the car, and ran on foot before collapsing. Now, from that story, the way it was reported a year ago is that this kid tried to kill police with his car, which would mean that him being shot is completely justified force. So to have him be indicted for the shooting, to have this particular officer indicted for the shooting, what does that mean? That means he was lying. He was lying his fucking ass off. So you will be shocked, I'm sure, to find that the officer was white and Zaitarius Gandhi, the victim, is black. We'll see how that story pans out. Uh, in New Jersey, out of Millville, we have another officer arrested for kitty porn. I feel like this is the... Did we did I already cover one earlier today? No, it's further down. I knew, See, I knew we had at least two kitty porn arrests this week. Uh, kitty porn is a thing with a lot of police departments, apparently. We're going we're gonna to cover that one. The next one's in Ohio. Uh, but in the New Jersey case, it says, quote, a Cumberland County grand jury on Wednesday indicted Millville resident Samuel Brozina on two child pornography charges in a case that originated a year ago in a seashore community in Cape May County. Brazina was indicted on second-degree charge of endangering the welfare of a child and a third-degree charge of endangering the welfare of a child. The charges were brought based on what New Jersey State Police reported finding in a search of a computer at his home in late July of 2017. So this guy just pled guilty to kitty porn back in June for the Cape May County stuff and now has more kitty porn charges in Cumberland County because apparently he's got a thing with kitty porn. Uh, he has thankfully been fired from his job as a Millville Police Department officer because he's a kitty pornographer. Uh, out of North Carolina, we've got some stupid fucking stories here. God, let's start with Carrie, where we're going to have the poop patrol coming. Yes, this is an actual thing. From the story, it says, quote, North Carolina officials say the state has seen an 800% increase in fatal overdoses from opioids over the past decade. On Monday night, the town of Cary discussed how the problem could be addressed. 
And when I reference the Poop Patrol, I'm not joking here, folks. It says, quote, to do their part in addressing the crisis, the town of Cary is going to start screening sewage to track down users, raising questions about privacy and the logistics of the plan. Town leaders say there will be roughly 10 sampling stations within the town's wastewater collection system that will measure the concentration of opioids in human waste and wastewater. So for an, this is a subquote. So for an area of like 16,000 people in a day's time, that's about 800,000 gallons a day that will pass this sampler, said Deputy Town Manager Mike Badgerek. This will be sent back to Boston, where they will be running a test to get a chemical analysis. Each station will attempt to measure the level of opioid use in an area of about 3,000 to 5,000 homes. The results will estimate the daily rate of opioid usage per every 1,000 people in the town. This is creepy as fuck. Like, it's hard to articulate how creepy it is that the government is going to check your shit and piss to see whether or not you're a drug user. That's fucking disturbing. Out of Harnett County, a uh, federal wrongful death lawsuit has been allowed to proceed in the shooting death of John Livingston. Because we're pressed for time, I'm not going to give you the details, but I will give you a link to the story. Out of Southern Pines, we're now giving out the death penalty for avoiding DWI checkpoints. From that story, it says, quote, A state highway patrol trooper was going faster than agency policy allows when he forced a car he was pursuing to spin out last month, killing the driver. Authorities say 22-year-old Shanquel Barrett tried to avoid a booze-it-and-lose-it checkpoint. That's a fancy phrase for a DWI checkpoint uh, in Southern Pines, prompting Sergeant James Stahl to give chase. A crash report obtained by WRAL shows Stahl and Barrett were both driving 80 miles an hour on Highway 1 in Aberdeen when Stahl used a precision immobilization technique called a pit maneuver. That's where the police car hits your driver's side rear bumper to force your vehicle to spin out. Uh, the move involves bumping a rear fender. Oh, I see. I, had I kept reading, I would have seen this in here. The move involves bumping a rear fender of a fleeing vehicle to cause it to spin out. Barrett lost control of his Honda Accord, and it skidded off the highway and clipped a utility pole before slamming into a tree at 50 miles an hour. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, there is no set of circumstances where avoiding a checkpoint should result in the death penalty. If the police choose to block your path going home, you should be able to go a different path without being executed for it. And the story highlights how fucked we are as a society because WRAL has put in this new feature where for each sentence in a story, you can click whether you approve or disapprove or various other emotions about it. And the parts where the officer killed the driver, overwhelming approval. Everyone thinks this is just the coolest fucking thing that we killed a guy for avoiding a DWI checkpoint. It's fucking disturbing. Uh, at a South Port, so not Southern Pines, now we're in South Port, just south of Wilmington, the entire police department has been disbanded, in effect. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the police chief in a small eastern North Carolina town was arrested Thursday, along with one of his lieutenants, and charged with corruption and other crimes. Southport Police Chief Gary Lee Smith and Lieutenant Michael Simmons were both charged with obtaining property by false pretenses. Smith was also charged with obstruction of justice and willful failure to discharge the duties of his office. Smith and Simmons were accused of working for a trucking and shipping company at the same time they were supposed to be working in their jobs leading the local police force, sometimes leaving the city or even the state while on the clock for the city police. The entire police force has been put on leave because of the allegations against its top leaders, and the Brunswick County Sheriff's Office is taking over the police department's duties. So those are stories out of North Carolina. In Ohio, out of Columbus, 
Columbus, we have the other kitty porn connoisseur. From that story, it says, quote, Child pornography charges filed Wednesday against a Columbus police sergeant who served as the police division's spokesman damaged the public's perception of law enforcement, said a sergeant who recently held the same job. So, quote, this is disturbing conduct from a member of the division, one that is publicly out there representing all of us within the division of police, Sergeant Rich Weiner said of the allegations against Sergeant Dean Worthington. Subquote, the public entrusts us to protect them from this kind of crime, and right now this conduct simply erodes that trust. The public needs to know we take this very serious. Worthington was indicted by a Franklin County grand jury on three counts of pandering sexually oriented matter involving a minor and one count of illegal use of a minor in nudity oriented material. Worthington used his personal cell phone to download child pornography. He also uploaded an image to Tumblr and downloaded multiple videos and images depicting young children engaging in sexual activity with adults. If they actually took it very seriously, they'd be a bit more proactive in trying to find this stuff, frankly. Uh, out of Toledo, I don't know if we would call this good news. I guess it's good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. A Trump supporter in Toledo was neighbors with black folks, and she spray-painted on their house, Hail Trump, uh, N-word, stay out, except you know the N-word in place of the N-word, and a swastika. Uh, well, it turns out a neighbor across the street had a camera system set up that recorded it. She got reported to the police. The police actually arrested her, and the neighbors actually went through and uh, cleaned up the house. Now, interesting part of the story, and this is, this is a bit off on a tangent, but when police showed up, she tried to run away. She didn't want to get arrested. And it makes me wonder, why are racists such bitch asses when it comes to the things they do? Like during the Civil Rights Movement, People who were engaging in civil disobedience, they submitted to being arrested. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous writings was a letter from a Birmingham jail. When he was in jail, he was actually arrested. But yet you've got these fucking Richard Spencer wannabes who are off doing this racist-ass shit, and they don't want to be held accountable for the stuff they do. They want to be able to call you everything under the sun without any consequences. They want to damage your property and get away with it. There's so much economic anxiety in Ohio. Uh, out of Oregon, in Multnomah County, we have another officer involved in a sex crime. From that story, it says, quote, A Multnomah County Sheriff's Office corrections deputy has been indicted on charges of sex abuse. On Wednesday, a Multnomah County grand jury indicted Dwight Ritchie on three counts of second-degree sex abuse, five counts of third-degree sex abuse, and one count of harassment. Ritchie was accused of sexually assaulting a woman in Multnomah County while off-duty in May 2017. The Multnomah County Sheriff's Office said Ritchie was placed on paid administrative leave, that is paid a vacation, when the agency became aware of the investigation. Although the alleged assault occurred in Multnomah County, the two agencies agreed that Washington County should lead the investigation. In December, investigators said more women came forward to report sexual misconduct by Richie. Uh, out of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, this is interesting. So the mayor has decided to end a data sharing agreement with ICE. So I'm not going to go through all the details. We'll give you a link to the story. But basically, Pennsylvania has a system called PARS, which is basically a real-time database of police stuff and other government records. Uh, it's similar to what we have in North Carolina. We have a system called CJ Leads, which stands for Criminal Justice, Law Enforcement, uh, Automated Data Services, that basically every conceivable thing about you flows into this system. So your local arrest records, state arrest records, federal arrest records, your fishing and hunting licenses can 
concealed carry permits, driver's license, all of that shit comes into this one screen so that someone can pull up you and see everything about you everywhere in the country. So this type of the same type of thing is here in PARS. Uh, and normally Pennsylvania had been sharing or the Philadelphia mayor's office in particular had been sharing this data uh, with ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And the mayor's decided that he's not going to do that anymore. Uh, and apparently it's because ICE was using the system to try and find people who were born outside of the United States each morning even though PARS does not list your immigration status or where you were born. They were basically looking for people who looked Hispanic or had Hispanic last names, and then we'll go try and round them up. So we'll give you a link to that story. Out of South Carolina in Walterboro, a police officer has been sentenced at this point for stealing money. From that story, it says, quote, a former police officer was sentenced Thursday for stealing money from her department's evidence locker. Stephanie Grant Bridge stole more than $20,000 from evidence at the Walterboro Police Department. But the 49-year-old will not be going to prison after pleading guilty to misconduct in office and grand larceny. Instead, the solicitor's office reported that she received a three-year suspended sentence and three years of probation, also ordered to perform 200 hours of community service and pay $22,075 in restitution. Now, I'm going to say a lot of people were offended that she didn't go to prison for that. I'll note that sentence is not particularly unusual. And the main reason why is that restitution has been paid. It's it's not uncommon for people to get probation if they've made full restitution and do some additional stuff and don't have a record. Uh, so that was not particularly unusual. Um, Jesus, we're already at an hour and 15 minutes. Are you serious? I haven't even gotten to the low on 40 yet. Okay, so we're going to blaze through these last few stories. Uh, out of Tennessee in Knoxville, We'll give you a link to the story, but basically a former uh, University of Tennessee football player, Geraldo Orta, when he was in college, threatened a witness to a rape by one of his teammates and engaged in other uh, unsavory conduct, and he's now been made a Knoxville Police Department officer. So we give you a link to that. Out of Texas, there's been a return to zero-tolerance policies after the uh, Santa Fe and Parkland shootings. And the end result of these zero-tolerance policies is that it's disproportionately affecting minority students and kids with disabilities. Uh, some examples, a 12-year-old student was arrested and taken to detention for making a gun with his fingers and pretending to shoot make-believe creatures in an empty hallway at the school. Uh, a 12-year-old blind kid was taken to jail because he threatened a kid who was bullying him. All told, there's been a 156% increase in referrals for terroristic threats, a 600% increase in referrals for exhibition of firearms, and two-thirds of those firearms charges are not kids actually having firearms. They're doing shit like pointing their fingers as if it were a gun. Now remember, zero tolerance is a misnomer because all it means is that, you know, and under the old system, you had discretion on what kids you sent to jail. Teachers still have that. They just exercise it by choosing where to look. That's what a zero-tolerance policy is. If you see it, you have to report it. So they just willfully look in a different direction. Uh, so preteens and kids with disabilities, they're not the ones shooting up schools. So this Texas policy is fucking stupid, even though it's supposedly informal. Out of Austin, the Forensic Science Commission for the state decided that uh, blood spatter pattern analysis is bogus, which it is. It's a complete bullshit forensic science. We'll give you a link to that story, but essentially there's a high school principal who was convicted in 1985 for murdering his wife 
based on blood spatter pattern analysis. And the experts that testified just completely fucked up the pseudoscience that they were reporting on. So we give you that story. And then the last in the uh, state-by-state criminal justice fuckery is out of West Virginia in Charleston. There are uh, impeachment proceedings taking place, testimony in those relating to Justice Alan Lowry, who we've talked about before in episodes 69 and 71. And we're going to give you a link, but there's a lot of behind-the-scenes shenanigans taking place. But basically, Lowry, before he was elected justice, was sexually harassing court personnel. Uh, There's testimony about furniture that was paid for with public money that ended up in Lowry's home, uh, a shitload of money spent on office renovations, and the court administrator was threatened to be fired when he wanted to fire a bad employee who happened to be friends with another justice. The list goes on from there. It's all a mess. Okay, so I have sorry to rush through those last few ones, but I wanted to still get in this Law 140 and try and keep us as close to an hour and a half as we can. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 this week on prior restraints. All right, so it's another week in America, another week of crazy ass shit involving our beloved papaya potus, Donald Trump. And this particular week had his former attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, disclosing that he has audio recordings of the president, including one particular discussion where they are talking about paying off a former Playboy model, Karen McDougal. This is different from Stormy Daniels. Apparently, Donald can't get sex without paying for it. Uh, So CNN got the tapes and broadcast them. And one of the questions that came up online was, is there anything Donald Trump could have done to stop CNN? You know, I'm half inclined to think that the White House actually leaked the tapes, to be honest with you, because it gives them a chance to portray the president as the victim in this particular situation. But it, it triggered a lot of conversation about whether or not CNN broke the law by choosing to run these particular tapes. Short answer is they didn't. Spoiler alert, just so you know. Uh, So instead of talking about things from the attorney-client privilege side of it, we're not going to cover that. Go back to episode 42, where we had a Law 140 on attorney-client privilege. We're instead going to talk about what theoretically... President Trump could have done to stop CNN from airing the tapes and why it would not have worked. So remember the second rule of Fisk, when you're looking at certain types of things like this, you have to start at the source text. And for this particular scenario, you're looking at the text of the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, in prior Law 140s, we've covered certain things. One is that the First Amendment applies to both the Congress and the executive branch and the judiciary. Even though it says Congress shall make no law, it applies to all of the government. And by virtue of the incorporation doctrine, it applies to the states via the 14th Amendment. And we're going to talk about one of the cases that we address here today uh, dealing with that. So that's the basis for it. So first off, what is a prior restraint? That is a legal term of art. What does it mean? It is basically a government restriction on future speech. You are stopping expression before it's even allowed to happen. So there are two ways, there are probably other ways that I can't think of, but the two most common ways this happens 
uh, is via what's called licensing. So you actually have to get permission from the government to speak before you do so. And then the other option is using the courts. You get you know a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction. Uh, these are all just different terms for the same practical effect, which is the court saying to the speaker, you are not allowed to say this thing, and if you violate this court order, we will throw you in jail for contempt. So prior restraints are not new. I mean, they've been talked about for a while. If you've not heard the name Sir William Blackstone, uh, he is a very famous judge, jurist, legal scholar. Uh, from back in the 1700s during colonial time. He was in England, so he's like an English-British guy. But he basically just sat around and pontificated on ship, and he's written a lot of treatises that have heavily influenced the development of the law. And that reach is extended even more so than it would be otherwise, because remember, at the time Blackstone was doing this stuff, every future British colony imported British law. So the United States is the most obvious example, Canada, Australia, South Africa, anywhere that Britain controlled at some point or another has the exact same roots in what Blackstone wrote about. And I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of his stuff because it's going to be quoted in these Supreme Court opinions, but essentially prior restraints are heavily disfavored. Punishing media after the fact when they do something wrong is fine, but stopping them from speaking in the first place is very difficult. The government is not supposed to do it. So there are a few different court cases, and I'm going to give you four of them, that kind of track the evolution of prior restraint law in the United States. So keep in mind, again, our roots are from British common law. We've effectively imported Blackstone's uh, you know, writings that prior restraints are disfavored. The Supreme Court considered a case in Patterson versus Colorado in 1907. This is before the incorporation doctrine took effect. So the Federal Bill of Rights was not being applied to the states at this particular point in time. And what you found was local media had printed uh, articles and political cartoons implying that the justices of the Supreme Court of Colorado were corrupt. And then those justices held the publishers in contempt. They put them in jail. The defendants, what get called in the nomenclature back then as the plaintiffs in error, the ones that are initiating the appeal, uh, the defendants appealed to the Supreme Court and said, look, this is totally fucked up. This violates the First Amendment. We're sitting here speaking truth to power and we're getting thrown in jail for it. Can you help us out? And the Supreme Court said no. The Supreme Court said y'all get to stay locked up. And it wasn't even close. It was a seven to two decision. And from the majority opinion, one of the key points says, quote, the defense upon which the plaintiff in error most relies is raised by the allegation that the articles complained of are true and the claim of the right to prove the truth. He claimed this right under the constitutions both of the state and of the United States. We leave undecided the question whether there is to be found in the 14th Amendment a prohibition similar to that in the first. But even if we were to assume that freedom of speech and freedom of the press were protected from abridgments on the part not only of the United States but also of the states, still we should be far from the conclusion that the plaintiff in error would have us reach. In the first place, the main purpose of such constitutional provisions is to prevent all such previous restraints upon publications as had been practiced by other governments. That's a quote from Blackstone's writings, by the way. And they do not prevent the subsequent punishment of such as may be deemed contrary to the public welfare. The preliminary freedom extends as well to the false as to the true. 
The subsequent punishment may extend as well to the true as to the false. This was the law of criminal libel, apart from statute in most cases, if not in all. So what you're seeing there is the Supreme Court saying, even though this is a very anti-publisher case, they still have the point that prior restraints are bad. You can still lock you up afterwards, and that's fine, but the prior restraint is why the First Amendment exists. Now, I'm going to give you a flash forward a few decades. The concept of the chilling effects doctrine, the notion that punishing speech after the fact inhibits speech before the fact, that's kind of how we've gotten away from throwing people in jail for criticizing politicians. Uh, but in this particular case, Patterson versus Colorado, the Supreme Court has affirmed that prior restraints are bad, but they're fine with people being thrown in jail after the fact. So the next case is Near versus Minnesota. This is in 1931, and a Minneapolis newspaper called the Saturday Press uh, accused local officials there of being involved with gangsters and the mafia. So they ended up being charged under a public nuisance law that said, quote, uh, persons engaged in the business of regularly publishing or circulating an obscene, lewd, or lascivious, or a malicious, scandalous, and defamatory newspaper or periodical were guilty of violating this particular ordinance. So the uh, government officials went to a court and said, look, give us an injunction blocking this newspaper from ever publishing this stuff again. The trial court said, okay, here's your injunction. The state Supreme Court agreed and said the trial court was right to do that, and they appealed to the United States Supreme Court that overturned the lower court's decisions. This was a five-to-four decision where the Supreme Court not only undid what the lower courts had done, they actually declared the ordinance facially unconstitutional. From the majority opinion, it says, quote, The question is whether a statute authorizing such proceedings in restraint of publication is consistent with the conception of the liberty of the press as historically conceived and guaranteed. In determining the extent of the constitutional protection, it has been generally, if not universally, considered that it is the chief purpose of the guarantee to prevent previous restraints upon publication. The struggle in England, directed against the legislative power of the licensor, resulted in renunciation of the censorship of the press. The liberty deemed to be established was thus described by Blackstone. Quote, the liberty of the press is indeed essential to the nature of a free state, but this consists in laying no previous restraints upon publications and not in freedom from censure for criminal matter when published. Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. But if he publishes what is improper, mischievous, or illegal, he must take the consequence of his own temerity." The court continues, For these reasons, we hold the statute, so far as it has authorized the proceedings in question, to be an infringement of the liberty of the press guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. We should add that this decision rests upon the operation and effect of the statute, without regard to the question of the truth of the charges contained in the particular periodical. The fact that the public officers named in this case, and those associated with the charges of official dereliction, may be deemed to be impeccable cannot affect the conclusion that the statute imposes an unconstitutional restraint upon publication. Now, here again, you have the Supreme Court saying prior restraints are bad, but as part of this opinion, what they put into the majority holding was that theoretically, there could be scenarios involving national security where a judicial order blocking publication of something could be allowed. The court left that question open for a future case to resolve, and we're going to get there in a minute. 
But the next case came in 1963. There was a case of Bantam Books versus Sullivan. And this is because the state of Rhode Island had created a censorship protocol. They had created something called the Rhode Island Commission to Encourage Morality in Youth. And part of their powers uh, were, quote, to educate the public concerning any book, picture, pamphlet, ballad, printed paper, or other thing containing obscene, indecent, or impure language or manifestly tending to the corruption of the youth. So that was the power of this particular commission. You know, looking at it in a 2010, 2018 lens, that's some creepy ass shit, knowing that it was just in the 1960s that this type of thing existed. Uh, Well, that particular censorship protocol where book publishers had to get permission from the government to publish their books, and if the government objected, they could be blocked. Uh, Bantam Books sued and won. The censorship protocol was overturned by an eight to one vote. And what the court said is, quote, what Rhode Island has done, in fact, has been to subject the distribution of publications to a system of prior administrative restraints. Since the commission is not a judicial body and its decisions to list particular publications as objectionable do not follow judicial determinations that such publications may lawfully be banned. Any system of prior restraints of expression comes to this court bearing a heavy presumption against its constitutional validity. We have tolerated such a system only where it operated under judicial superintendence and assured an almost immediate judicial determination of the validity of the restraint. So that is in 1963. Just seven years later, in New York Times versus the United States, uh, this became known as the Pentagon Papers case. This addressed the question that the court in Nearview, Minnesota, left open. You know, this notion that theoretically something involving national security could justify a prior restraint. And the majority opinion in uh, New York Times v. U.S., is a plurality opinion. It's unsigned, and it's very short. It's only three paragraphs long. Uh, It says, quote, We granted certiorari in these cases, in which the United States seeks to enjoin the New York Times and the Washington Post from publishing the contents of a classified study entitled History of U.S. Decision-Making Process on Vietnam Policy. Any system of prior restraints of expression comes to this court bearing a heavy presumption against its constitutional validity. The government thus carries a heavy burden of showing justification for the imposition of such a restraint. The District Court for the Southern District of New York in the New York Times case and the District Court for the District of Columbia and the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in the Washington Post case all held that the government had not met that burden. We agree. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is therefore affirmed. The order of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit is reversed and the case is remanded with directions to enter a judgment affirming the judgment of the District Court for the Southern District of New York. The stays entered June 5th of 1971, sorry, June 25th of 1971 by the court are vacated. The judgments shall issue forthwith. Now, we never really see Supreme Court opinions that short. And the reason why it was short is that it was damn near impossible to get justices to agree on a rationale. So Justice Black and Justice Douglas, both of them wrote a separate concurrence that the other one agreed with. Brennan had his own concurrence. That's now three concurrences. Uh, Justice Stewart and Justice White each wrote a concurrence that the other one agreed with. So that's concurrence four and concurrence five. And then Justice Marshall had a concurrence. So you had six different concurrences by the justices. And then there were two dissents. Chief Justice Berger dissented, and then Justice Harlan had a dissent that Berger and Justice Blackman joined in. Uh, So the case is a mess. 
But all of this justice talking back and forth, you get the contours of modern prior restraint doctrine. Kind of each of them had their very long concurrences. They're incorporating these past cases, Bantam books, Near View, Minnesota, and everything else. And so under the modern interpretation, where you are at today, basically a publication, whether it's printed, TV, whatever, if they are publishing information about matters of public interest that they've acquired lawfully, they are allowed to do it. There's absolutely nothing the government can do to stop them. So the first question a court would have to address is whether or not this proposed restriction is a prior restraint. And it's going to be a prior restraint anytime it's a law or an administrative or judicial order that stops certain communications uh, prior to those communications taking place. That's different from a statute that says you can be held liable if you fuck up. But if it stops you from fucking up in the first place, it's going to be against the law. And if you're challenging that particular restraint, you get to bring causes of action under both the federal constitution and most state constitutions. So, for example, in North Carolina, uh, Article 1 of our state constitution is called the Declaration of Rights. It's similar to the Federal Bill of Rights, but it's in our constitution on the front end instead of an amendment. Article 1, Section 14 of the North Carolina Constitution says, Freedom of speech and of the press are two of the great bulwarks of liberty, and therefore shall never be restrained, but every person shall be held responsible for their abuse. This is actually, this is basically the exact same concept that you've heard in all of these Supreme Court opinions. Can't stop you ahead of time from speaking, but if you say something that violates the law, you can be punished for it. So then, let's assume you've got a prior restraint in place. You've got a valid claim under the First Amendment or your state constitution. It's then going to be given strict scrutiny analysis. Now, we've covered this in prior episodes. Something subject to strict scrutiny is presumptively invalid. It has to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. And in the case of a prior restraint, it's only going to be considered necessary by a court if, and I'm reading off the factors here, the harm to the governmental interest will definitely occur. The harm will be irreparable. No alternative exists for preventing the harm, and the prior restraint will actually, in fact, prevent it. Without those four elements, the prior restraint is going to die. So I'm going to give you links to all of these particular stories, or all these cases, rather, in the show notes. And I'm also going to give you a link to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which put together a lot of case law as part of a brief that they submitted on behalf of muckrock.com trying to get a temporary restraining order dissolved. And it's very well written. It has a lot of the case law in it, and you can kind of see how all this stuff plays out in practice. But a key thing to note is that the Supreme Court has never upheld a prior restraint on the publication of news ever in the however many years the Supreme Court has existed. It just doesn't happen. So even though Michael Cohen may have theoretically broken the law by recording Donald Trump, may have violated attorney-client privilege by disclosing it, uh, CNN did not violate any laws at all in choosing to publish them. So folks, that is a quick rundown on the law of prior restraints. I hope you found that interesting and at least understood it. If you liked what you've heard today, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. It'd also be great if you could leave us a written review. Please make sure to go vote for us for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. 
and tell a friend. Let them know that we are producing this stuff here for you and that you really, truly enjoy it. Uh, On behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday. (laughs) 